University of Geneva, also very close to the uh, the church building where John Calvin preached and taught. The, 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 you'll see this uh, this monument here to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. So during those the 1500s, you had uh, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin radically transforming the world. The central feature in the park there is this magnificent wall, and, and adorned on the wall is not just the four big guys there, but there's others as well. John Calvin stands uh, really um, predominant among the, those particular four, but there was also other guys like John Knox, and on the wall was uh, Ulrich Zwingli and Theodore Beza and, and, and others. And it's interesting, if you were to go to the old city of Geneva, you'd also find chiseled on that particular wall there, these Latin words, you'll see up there, post tenebras lux, which means this, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. And those words are very significant when we think of the Protestant Reformation. It, it really captures the driving force of the Reformation. See, the darkness referred to as the eclipse of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that had occurred during the Middle Ages. There was a, a gradual darkening of the gospel and it reached its lowest point. And the light of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone had become all but extinguished. The massive storm of the Reformation was fueled by the most volatile issue ever debated in church history, according to many historians that I've read, and it is sola fide, faith alone. Of course, every generation throughout church history has uh, seen many doctrinal struggles and debates happen, but no doctrinal dispute has ever been contested more fiercely or with such long-term consequences as the one over the doctrine of justification. How it, it, You say, well, what is justification? I'll give you a really good definition in a moment. But basically, it's how is one made positionally right with God? Well, historians often describe justification as the material cause of the Reformation. In, in other words, think of it this way. It was the core issue of the whole debate. It was this doctrine that led to the worst rupture in Christendom ever experienced. It's what ends up leading to the fragmentation of the church into thousands of denominations. So, if you've ever wondered why we have so many different kinds of churches around the world today, this is why. The roots can be traced back to the debate over the doctrine of justification. How are you made right with God? That is really important. And so this, this one reason is why it's important to study this passage today from Romans chapter 4. But before I do, do some reading and, and we do some deep study here in a moment, let me just, since we're kind of diving into Romans without having the previous context, let me just give you a very quick big picture introduction to one of my favorite books in the Bible, which is Romans. So you'll see the, a basic outline on the screen here. But basically, the first 17 verses in Romans gives us an introduction 
to the book. A key verse, by the way, verse 17, is, is the verse that God, the Holy Spirit, used in Martin Luther's life to bring him to faith in Christ. As he was studying his Bible, and he's, he's reading uh, uh, you know, that you are justified by faith, God opened his eyes. Oh, <laughs> it's not through my works? Oh, it was, it was such a freeing truth to him. Praise God. But as you, as you move on, going on into chapters 2 and 3, we, we see that uh, righteousness is defied in, in many ways. We, we see that um, uh, the Gentiles are declared guilty there, the, the Jews were declared guilty, and the whole world is guilty. So if you think you're somehow missing in this picture, God says, no, all are unrighteous. Everybody is unrighteous. No, not one. And so, how, how then is one made right with God? Well, that's the good news starting at, coming to the end of chapter 3. We, we see the righteousness applied to, to a believer coming from, from Christ. And then in chapter 6 to 8, how does that, how does that uh, truth lived out in the believer's life? If you're made right with God, it's going to have an effect on you. So that's the righteousness applied there in chapter 6 through 8. So that's a good portion of the book of Romans, kind of introducing us as we come into chapter 4. But in Romans 4 to 8, Paul explained how God's great plan of salvation was in complete harmony with the Old Testament Scriptures. See, it's all one one harmonious book. It's, it's a unity because it's all written by the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? He, he began first with the father of the Jewish nation, of course, Abraham. And in Romans chapter 4 here, the Apostle Paul presented several irrefutable reasons why justification is not by works, but by faith. It's by faith. So this is a key passage that hopefully opens our eyes to sola fide. Now, since Romans talks a lot about justification, I want to make sure you have a really good definition of this. So Dr. Wayne Grudem said this, quote, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And, number two, declares us to be righteous in His sight. Yep, that's, that's how God declares you to be righteous. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul, because of the kind of brain God gave him, he's very logical as he's going through the book of Romans and you need to understand why is chapter 4 here at this particular point. Because if you, if you read Romans chapter 3, the Jewish Christians in Rome would have, have been thinking and probably asked the question, well, how does this doctrine of justification by faith relate to our history, the, the, the history of the Hebrews, the, the Israelites? Well, that's a good question. So the Apostle Paul comes and he says, well, Hey, yeah, I know you guys, you, you know your history of the law and the prophets, but uh, did, you, did you realize your father, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, also points 
to this truth of justification by faith alone. And so that's his he that's the the argument he's using here in chapter 4. So Paul he accepted the challenge and and explained how Abraham was saved here. Abraham was called our father referring primarily to the Jews' natural and physical descent from Abraham. But it's interesting, in, in verse 11, in verse 11 of Romans 4, Abraham's also called the father of all them that believe. And of course, that means everybody who is trusted in Christ for salvation, is, that you're included in that. He's your father in that way. And so Paul, what, he, what he's going to do here is he states, Three three big points I'm just going to highlight for you today from the from the text. Three points, important facts about Abraham's salvation that prove how he was saved. What is his spiritual experience? And then how does that relate to you and me? Okay? So that's where we're going today. And here's the theme. Here's the theme. And and you're going to see this worked out in the text. Here's the theme. The justification is is by faith in God's grace. And God's power. Justification is by faith in God's grace and power. And the, and the first very important fact about salvation we're going to see in the first few verses here is this, my friends, that justification, the, how are you made right with God? Justification is by faith, and it's not by your works. It's not by your works. Look at Romans 4, starting in verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1 says this, What then... When you see then, you know Paul's responding to chapter 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. And then he quotes one of David's psalms from the Old Testament. Here it is. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Praise God. (laughs) Well, we'll just stop there for a moment, because that's showing us that justification is how? How are you made right with God? It's by faith alone. It's not your works. And how does Paul prove this? The Apostle Paul proves this by, by bringing on two witnesses. Now, the Jews coming from the Old Testament, because God said uh, when, you have, when you prove something in court, you need at least two witnesses. One was insufficient, and so this is what Paul's doing. He brings on two witnesses from the Old Testament to prove that justification is by faith. And what does he do? He brings Moses. Moses. Now, it doesn't mention Moses, but that's because if you look at your cross-references, Paul's quoting Genesis chapter 15, who, of course, was written by Moses. And then he brings in David here, and he quotes from Psalm 32. That's verses 7 and 8. So those are the two witnesses proving this fact, wonderful fact about salvation, that justification is by faith alone. 
Now, if you remember from our study in Genesis, Paul had examined the experience of Abraham as recorded there in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, remember in the previous chapter, Abraham had already defeated those five kings of the Canaanites, and he's wondering if if they're going to return and fight against him. And so what does God do? God comes on the scene, and he appears to Abraham, and he assures him that, Abraham, I am your shield, and I am your great reward. But the thing that Abraham wanted most, you remember, what did he want the most? Was a son. He wanted an heir. And so God promised him a son. But of course, as yet, the promise had not yet been fulfilled. And so it was then, here in Genesis 15, that God told him, Abraham, look at the stars of the heavens. That's the way your seed's going to be. And God promised, and the Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God's promises. And so the Hebrew word translated believe means he, he said amen. Truly, truly, this I believe, in other words. And so God gave a promise. Abraham responds with amen. And so it was that faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And you say, well, what does counted mean? Well, the word counted in, um, in Romans 4, verse 3, is an interesting Greek word. It means to put to one's account. To put to one's account. The idea is it's, it's a banking term. So that, that same word is used actually 11 times in this chapter. It's, it, sometimes it gets translated by other English words, words like reckoned or imputed. Uh, sometimes it's just translated as counted. But when a man works, uh, if you, that is if you work for somebody else, you, you earn a salary. And that, that salary, that money that you earn is put to your a bank account. That's the idea here. But Abraham did not work for his salvation. He simply trusted God and his word. And it was Jesus Christ who did the work on the cross for Abraham. And it's Christ's righteousness that was put to Abraham's account. You see the difference. That's what it's saying in our text. If you look at verse 5 of our text, the, the verse makes a very startling statement. Because God justifies who? Not good people. It doesn't say God justifies good people. No, God justifies the ungodly, the unrighteous. <laughs> well, that's amazing if you know your Old Testament, because in the book of Exodus it says, God will not justify the wicked. Does, do you see how those seem to conflict? But God here says he justifies the ungodly. How does he do that? How can he do that? Well, because there's no godly people for him to justify, first of all. <laughs> right? Jesus said he's the only one who's good. There are no godly people. There are no good people. And so what does he do? He puts our sins on the one who is godly, Jesus, that he might put Christ's goodness and righteousness on the ungodly, and so now God looks at the ungodly as godly. You see how that works? 
So God looks into a Christian's spiritual bank account, and he sees, whoa, paid in full by my son, Jesus Christ. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> that's amazing. And so you come here in the text of verses 6 through 8, and, and uh, Paul used David as a witness here. And, and he's, by the way, the context of, of Psalm 32, he's actually quoting one of David's psalms, of confession after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David makes two amazing statements in in those verses, verses 7 and 8 there. Number one, he says that God forgives sin. And then what does he do? He imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer. And notice it's apart from your works. Totally separate from your works. The other amazing statement, number two, is that God does not impute our sins. <laughs> wow. So he, he takes our sins. In other words, once we're justified, our record contains Christ's perfect righteousness and can never again contain our sins. So when you are justified at that moment of justification, Christ took all of your sins past, present, and future sins. Well, of course, you say, well, I still sin. Yeah, I know. So do I. (laughs) I probably sin every day. But, you see, Christians are going to continue to sin as long as you have the sin nature. And those sins need to be forgiven if we are to have fellowship with God. But those sins, the Bible says, will not be held against you. And that's why in chapter 8, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't keep a record of our works so that he might reward us, but, but he's, he, sorry, sorry, he does. The exact opposite of what I meant there. He does keep a record of your works so that he can reward you, but he's not keeping a record of your sins. You see the difference? You say, well, I'm not getting it. Okay, let, let me give you an illustration. Maybe this will help you. Hopefully, I hope this serves you well. I heard, a, I, I read a, and heard a story, this happened several years ago. There was a very wealthy English businessman who purchased a Rolls Royce. You've you got to be wealthy to buy one of those because they range in price depending on all the accessories. But let's say, let's, let's say just roughly uh, 500,000 euros. And soon afterward, uh, he takes his new car over to France. While he was in France, it broke down. And so what did he do? He phoned, he phoned the Rolls-Royce people over in Britain. And you know how the manufacturer responded? The manufacturer actually flew a mechanic to France, and the man's car was immediately repaired. And, of course, this wealthy businessman expected a huge bill for all of this, for this amazing service that he received. But months went on, and he never got an invoice for this amazing service. So eventually he gets back home, and, he, and he's wondering, what in the world's going on? There's no, there's no invoice. And so by return mail, he received a very courteous note eventually from the company assuring him that they had no record of anything having gone wrong with his car. In other words, the point that Rolls-Royce was making was the company refused to acknowledge that anything 
imperfect had happened to one of their products. And that's exactly what happened to David in a spiritual sense, my friends. See, David says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whom God does not impute sin. See, my friends, when God forgives your sin, He blots out the record. See, your your record is horrible as an unbeliever. Your sin cannot be forgiven by anybody except God. And that's your worst problem. But praise God, He blots it out. And so it's it's just it, it's gone, and then then your bank account is full with Christ's righteousness. I like the way R.C. Sproul, before he went to heaven, sometime before he went to heaven, he, he said this. He said, the difference between Rome, and he doesn't mean the city of Rome, he means the religion. Uh, the difference between Rome and the Reformation can be seen in this formula. Here's the formula. I put it on the screen for you. The Roman... The, the, the Catholic view is this. It's how is one justified? How is one made right with God? Right? How does that happen? It's faith plus works. That's how you're made right with God. Faith plus your works. And so that's why you have to do all these things. You know, you've got to repent and do your penance and you've got to partake in the Mass and get your last rites and you know, so forth. Right? Well, the Protestant Reformation comes along. It's protesting against these false, all these false teachings like this. And here's, here's basically the, the uh, equations like this. What's well, No, that's not how it works. By the way, notice all three words are in both equations. So it's not actually accurate to say that, that Catholicism doesn't believe in faith because they do believe in faith. It's just they add to the faith. See, it's not faith alone. And and that's why one of the solas of the Reformation is sola fide. The issue was faith alone. And so now you have faith equals justification plus works. You're saved by faith alone, not your works. You see the difference? Huge, life-transforming difference. It's the difference between eternal death and eternal life. Where you put the faith makes a huge difference. And then, how does works come into that? Is works a part of salvation? See, if, you're, if you think works is a part of your salvation, then you're eternally damned. See, neither view, by the way, notice, eliminates the works. However, the Protestant view eliminates the human merit. <laughs> human merit doesn't enter into your salvation there. It recognizes that the works are evidence or a, a fruit of true faith, they add nothing to that meritorious basis of your redemption. It doesn't add to it. It's just, it's a fruit of your salvation. That's the point James is making. James says, show me your faith by your works. Well, there's a second important fact about salvation we need to understand from the text. It's this, my friends, that justification is by, not just faith, it's by Grace, God's grace, not by law. Not by law. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is what? Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into the existence the things that do not exist. Stop there for the moment. So, notice justification. In other words, how are you made right with God? It's not just by your faith. It's by grace, by God's grace, not law. As we've seen, the Jews gloried in one particular thing mentioned in that text, that is circumcision, and another thing mentioned in the text is their law, which is given back in Exodus and Leviticus. And so if a Jew was to become righteous before God... He would have to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. And and that was all part of their, their system, their law. Paul had already made it clear back in chapter 2 that there must be an inward obedience to the law. In other words, just doing an outward act doesn't save you. There had to be, as he called it, a circumcision of your hearts. It's an inward thing. So merely external observance can never save the lost sinner. See, it's like you trying to go to church to save yourself. That will never work. That's like that's like you going into your garage and proclaiming yourself to be a car. Right? You're not a car just because you're in the garage. Right? It doesn't it, that's not how it works. And so just because you're sitting in a church building with God's people doesn't make you part of God's people. <laughs> that's not how it works. But Abraham was declared righteous when he was in the state of uncircumcision, it says. And so from the Jewish point of view, Abraham was a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. And if you remember your your Genesis history, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, according to Genesis 17. And of course, that's 14 years after Genesis 15. So what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that circumcision had nothing to do with being made right with God. 
But then some people ask, well, why did God tell him to be circumcised and then go around his entire household? Hundreds of his household members needed circumcising too. Why? Well, look at verse 11, because it says it was a sign and a seal. As a sign, it was evidence that he belonged to God. It was also saying, Abraham saying, hey, I believe in God's promise. The believers today, by the way, the Bible says believers today are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be circumcised. <laughs> okay? So, particularly you ladies, if you're wondering, well, how do I do this? You, you, you don't have to do this because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's like he puts his stamp on you. You've experienced a spiritual circumcision of the heart, Colossians 2 says, not just some minor physical operation, but the idea is you're, it's a putting off of your old nature through, through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so circumcision didn't add to Abraham's salvation. What it did, though, was demonstrate something. It demonstrated it. But Abraham's also justified before the law was ever given, because when did that happen? Paul, Paul says, well, Genesis obviously is taking place before Exodus and Leviticus, well before this. So Abraham was justified how then? It wasn't through the law, by believing God's promise, not by obeying God's law. See, God used Moses to bring the law to his people Israel. And so the promise to Abraham was given purely through God's grace. It was unmerited. He didn't deserve it. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't merit it, this God's grace. And so, my friend, today, God justifies you. If you're justified, you are justified because of your belief in God's gracious promise. It's not because of your works. It's not because of trying to keep some law or obeying God's law. The law was not given to save you. It was only given to show you that you need a Savior. It, it was given to show that you were lost. And so the fact that Abraham was justified by grace, not by law, proves salvation is for all people, all people groups of the world, not just for the Jews. See? Didn't, didn't you see that several times? It said Abraham's the father of all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, verse 16 says. And so instead of the Jew complaining because Abraham's not saved by the law, the, the Jew ought to rejoice that God's salvation is now available to all people, and that Abraham's a, he, he's, he has this huge spiritual family, which is all true believers. Paul saw this as a fulfillment of Genesis 17, by the way. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 5 says, I have made you a father of many nations. And of course, through his seed eventually going all the way to Jesus Christ, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. Well, the third and last very important fact about salvation you need to see from this text is this, my friends, that you are justified by God's power, not through your human effort. It's not through your human effort. It, it is, it's by God's power this happens. Look at verse 18. 18. It says, In hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. 
as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. For when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So how is one made right with God? That happens by God's power, not through your human efforts. And so those verses are really an an expansion of verse 17, where it says, God gives life to the dead. He gives life to the dead. And so Paul saw this rejuvenation of Abraham's body as a picture of, of, of one greater and more powerful, who, of course, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead himself. And so then what does he do? He relates that to the resurrection of Christ. And one reason why God delayed in sending Abraham and Sarah a son was to permit all of their natural strength and their human effort to decline, to disappear. And what does it do? It just magnifies God's grace and His power, doesn't it? It's unthinkable for somebody a hundred years old to produce a child in the womb of some woman who's who's like 90 years old whose womb is dead has never been able to produce children so from a reproductive point of view both of them were dead and that's the point uh, that god's making both of them were dead reproductively but abraham didn't walk by sight he walked by faith what did god promise Whatever God promised, Abraham believed it. And all we need to do is believe God's promises as well. And Abraham's initial faith in God is recorded in Genesis 15. And that doesn't diminish in the years that follow. We, 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 we continue to see his faith evidence. He had strong faith. And it was this faith that gave him strength, uh, the Bible says, uh, to go on and do all those things. He did them all by faith, Hebrews 11 says. And so, my friends, the application to salvation is clear for you and for me, that God must wait until a sinner is dead. You are unable to help yourself before God releases His his saving power on you. See, you're not going to be saved until you recognize you're dead. You are spiritually dead. You are unable to save yourself. You have to stop believing you're a good person and you have to see yourself as God sees you and that you're unable to help yourself. And so as long as the lost sinner thinks he's strong enough to do anything to please God, he's not going to save that person by His grace. And so it was when Abraham actually admits that he's dead and it's God's power that's going to work in and through him and his body and his wife's body, that's when it happens. That's when God fulfills the promise of a son and an heir. 
It's when the lost sinner confesses he's spiritually dead that you're unable to help yourself, that God saves him. So my friends, have you ever come to the point where you died to self? Have you ever done what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5? Have you ever come empty-handed to Him, poor in spirit, recognizing you have absolutely nothing to offer Him that is going to impress Him? Nothing will impress Him. Do you realize that you're totally unable to save yourself? You've got to come to that point before God saves you. Let's just examine uh, this um, again, just thinking through some of these truths here. There's several characteristics of God-given faith that you need to understand from the text. Number one, God-given faith is this. It it believes when there's absolutely no basis for hope. (laughs) There's no basis of hope within you. (laughs) That's the, the important part. It's not through your human effort. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. And so faith and your hope must be in something, in in someone outside of yourself. That's what verse 18 is telling you. Verse 19 is saying that this God-given faith does not allow doubt to cloud and undermine belief. Do not let anything else cloud and undermine your belief in God. He's your hope. And then number three, God-given faith is strong. It's unwavering despite the physical weaknesses. Abraham's 100 years old. His wife's like 90 years old. She's barren. What hope is there? (laughs) Circumstances don't, don't match the promise. But God did it anyway. And then number five, God given faith does not vacillate between trust and doubt. God given faith is steady, steadfast, holds fast to God and his promises. And number six, God given faith gives glory to God, as verse 20 tells us here. Did you notice the end of verse 20? It says that, that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. <laughs> That's the right response. And then number seven, God-given faith is complete. It's complete. It's not lacking. It's all you need. And so the gospel, according to Romans 1, verse 16, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that this is made possible for for anyone. And by the way, a literal translation of verse 25 could read something like this that Jesus Christ was delivered up to die on account of our offenses, was raised up because of our justification. So what does that mean, my friends? It just means that the resurrection of Christ is the proof that God accepted Christ's sacrifice. And now sinners can be justified without God actually violating His law. God is not contradicting His own nature He is a just God. He cannot overlook sin. So how does He deal with the sin? He puts it on His Son. That's how He dealt with it. And the ESV study Bible in the footnote puts it this way, quote, look at this on the screen, that when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that He accepted Christ's suffering and death as full payment for sin. The Father's favor was directed toward Christ and through Christ toward those who believe. 
Since Paul sees Christians as united with Christ in his death and resurrection, God's approval of Christ at the resurrection results in God's approval also of all who are united to Christ, and in this way results in their justification. End quote. That's your only hope, my friends. So the key, of course, if you look at verse 24, is if we believe. The key is if we believe. Because the, the Bible, Jesus and the apostles continually state this idea, you are, you, how, how are you saved? It's belief. It's a trust in Christ alone. In fact, there's over 60 references to faith and unbelief just in the book of Romans alone. Romans 1.16 says that God's saving power is experienced only by those who believe in Christ. Romans 3.22 says that Christ's righteousness is given to those who believe. Romans 5.1 says we are justified by faith. And you say, well, that's great. That's great. I have faith. But your faith is only as good as your object, my friends. (laughs) What's the object of your faith? What's the object of your faith? See, if your faith is follow your heart, my friends, you're headed to hell because your heart is not a solid foundation. In fact, the Bible says your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So what's the object of the faith? It, it, every Christian's faith is Jesus Christ alone. That's your only hope. And so all these facts make Abraham's faith that much more powerful and wonderful. See, he didn't have a Bible to read He had no scripture. All he had was the simple promise of God given to him back in chapter 12 of Genesis. He couldn't look back at some long record of faith. He's not standing on other people's shoulders like we do. He was, in fact, he's helping to write the record. We stand on his shoulders. And so, yet Abraham, what did he do? He believed God. What what little he knew about him, he believed. And so, people today, you have it so much better You have a complete Bible to read. You can study it. You have a church fellowship, and you can look back at centuries of church history and all these wonderful people you can look to, all the way going back to Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith mentioned there. We have church history. We have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. We've got so much, but yet many people refuse to believe. The Bible says here that Abraham is the father of all who believe in Jesus Christ and are justified by faith. It's not by your works, not by your human effort, it's not by the law. And so, my friends, we're probably all Gentiles here, so this is good news. See, if you're a Gentile or a non-Jew, you can never be a natural descendant of Abraham, can you? DNA, your genetics, don't line up with Abraham. but you can be one of his spiritual descendants. And through the seed of Jesus Christ that comes from Abraham, you too are blessed. And so in chapter 4, what does Paul do here? He's presenting these irrefutable truths of how you can be made right with God. It's called justification or salvation. How does that happen? May I remind you how that happens? Justification is a gift. And since it is a gift, it cannot be earned by your works. See, if you, if you try to pay for something, it's no longer a gift. And since Abraham was, number two, justified before he circumcised, 
Justification is not based on the law. That's a, that's a work. And then number three, since Abraham's justified centuries before the law, then it, well, of course it's not based on law. And then number four, Abraham's justified because of his faith in God. It's not because of his works. And that's the point of Romans chapter 4. So what have we seen? We've seen two ways compared, basically, haven't we? we? We've seen those ways compared and contrasted. The first way, of course, is what most of the world's trying to do. As Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few that find the way to eternal life. Narrow is that, the gate to eternal life. And so that's the way it is. The first way is salvation by trying. The second way is salvation by trusting. So which one are you are you trying? Which one are you doing? Are you trying or trusting? Are you trusting God or are you trying your way? That's the issue. Is it your way or God's way? What Abraham found and what David found and what the Apostle Paul found and what you too must find is that salvation is by faith and it's not faith plus your works it's faith alone and what the reformers called sola fide faith alone and once you start adding something on and you start making the equation faith plus works equals justification you have no justification it doesn't exist for you and so you got to cross out the the works part and make it faith alone in order to have justification. And so may God enable us to believe this glorious truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you cause us to believe what Romans 4 is teaching, that our justification is by faith alone. It's not based on our good works. It's not based on trying to keep a law uh, it's, it's not based on our own human effort in any way. We have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. And so we thank, we're so thankful that you accepted his sacrifice. When he rose again from the dead, he conquered Satan and death and our sin. And we can live in victory. May we claim that. May we live in the light of Christ's resurrection. May we not try for one moment to do it in our own effort. May we see the futility of that. Father, those who are unsaved who are hearing this message, would you open their spiritual eyes? May they see the futility of their own efforts. May they see how they are lost and they're sinners and they need a Savior. May they see that they're not good people, none righteous, no, not one. But there is one who is, and so may... May you cause them to have a trust and a faith in Christ alone. Those of us who are believers, may we continue to trust. Not in our, our efforts. May we, may we not try to jump on the performance treadmill and, and run as fast as we possibly can until we collapse and fall off the performance treadmill. But may we continually rest in Christ's work and person. In Jesus' name we pray.